This morning's uh, passage is Genesis chapter 33. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and four hundred men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put their servants with their children in front. Then Leah with her children and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah, likewise, and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, No, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me, and at the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord in Seir. So Esau said, Let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padam Aram. And he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of the land on which he had pitched his tent. And there he erected an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. If you were not here last Sunday for the business meeting, you might have noticed Grant doing the exhortation this morning. And a reason for that is he is now an official elder candidate. And so pray for him. Uh, pray for us in the last stages, Lord willing, of his elder training, tra- training to be an elder, for wisdom and discernment. And we invite for, for him or for us feedback. Uh, he would be an elder over you. He's unlike sheep like in the field. They don't necessarily get to choose their elder. We We choose our elders at Grace Church. And so help us. Think through that with, with him, if you would, both in your prayer and in your, your feedback. So encourage him as well. He's a godly man who has served us faithfully for many, many years and, and perhaps in this next season as, as an elder of grace. So where do you, I don't know where he went, but thanks, Grant. <laughs> uh, anyway, good job this morning as well on the, the exhortation. So, all right, I need you to picture something, but it's not something you're going to want to picture, but... I'll do it anyway, I guess. Uh, uh, picture with me, if you, w- you would, your greatest relational conflict. 
thinking, oh man, that's not why I came to church. But it is. And I'll tell you why later. Picture with me, if you would, your greatest relational conflict. It's not a pleasant prospect, and you don't have to do it for too long. But right now, try to draw that to your mind, past or present. I'm sure that some of you don't have a lot to recall. It might not be anything too dramatic, and that's great. Others, I do know, though, have really broken and painful relationships still looming over you. Either way, imagine, now that you have that in your mind, imagine God commanding you to do something that would force you. You couldn't avoid it. It would force you to re-engage that person directly. Not indirectly, inevitably. Whatever that greatest conflict is, you would have to re-engage it. What would your response be at the command of God? What, what would happen inside of you? What would you think? What would you feel? What's the first thing you would do? What if beyond just the uncomfortableness of it, you had a genuine fear that they might harm you or even kill you? Would, would any of your answers to the questions I just asked change at all? Can you imagine them changing if God had met with you and given you specific and repeated promises concerning that relationship and the healing that he meant to bring about through it and in it, that he, meant, that he promised to protect and bless you? Would that change any of your answers at all? Well, if you're able to get your head around those things then you're able to rightly imagine the situation Jacob found himself in. It's pretty overwhelming, right? I mean, you don't have to even have used your imagination a lot to realize this is a big deal. This would have been an overwhelming situation. Well, overwhelming or not, in light of where we have been and what we've seen already in Genesis, this is where we are now in Genesis as we continue our walk through it. And that leaves us with two critical questions of this text. Did Esau still want to kill Jacob? That's a big deal. The last time the brothers were together, Jacob was forced to flee because Esau wanted to kill him. So the first question is, did Esau still want to kill Jacob? And the second question is, had Jacob's last encounter with God made any significant impact on Jacob and in his ability to trust God and believe God? Had he, had he been sanctified in any meaningful way? Had he been made more like God, more willing to endure the trials that might come because of his experience with God? Had, it, had, had his most recent encounter with God changed him in any significant way? We're going to find the answer to both those questions finally. They've been looming over us for a couple of weeks now in the text. But we'll find our answer to both of those questions this morning as the passage unfolds in three, fra- in three phases. Here are the three phases. If you have your outline, they're on, your, they're on it. It's three scenes to this passage. The somber prioritized approach. So Jacob and his clan somberly and in a way we'll see prioritizedly approached uh, Esau in the promised land. The second scene is the unexpected happy reunion between the brothers. And then lastly, the slow, slippery return all the way into the land God had called him to go. In finding the answer to these questions, we're also confronted with one grand reality. I learned this morning 
that the better way to say that is, this is a trustworthy saying, what I'm about to say. If you're in Berea, you know what I'm talking about from 1 Timothy. This is a trustworthy saying, and here it is. And that wasn't even in my notes. This is me speaking off the cuff. This is, it's as much as I can do. So, you know, this is a rare thing. Hopefully a good thing. Uh, So this is a trustworthy saying. Reconciliation, both horizontal, meaning among the people on this earth, and vertical, meaning with God. Reconciliation is never outside of God's reach for God's people. That's a trustworthy saying. If you're going to write one thing down, write that down. Let's pray that God would help us to see and experience all of this and whatever else he means us to from this text this morning. God, we, we love you. And we are thankful for your word. We are thankful as well as we sang just a few minutes ago that your Holy Spirit is present among us and in the, in for the believers in this room, present in us. And among the Holy Spirit's chief roles in, in us is to open our eyes to the truth, to open our hearts to the truth, and then to transform us increasingly to live in light of the truth. And so I pray, Spirit, that you would do that work this morning for the sake of the glory of the Father because of the atoning work of Jesus. I pray I'll listen in the name of the triune God. Amen. So again, as I mentioned in the introduction, the, the passage unfolds in three phases. And the first is Jacob's somber, prioritized approach to his brother and his homeland. Jacob, you remember, was chosen by God. Twins in the womb of the same woman, which I guess is the definition of a twin. Um, But Jacob was chosen by God, him, not his brother, in spite of the fact that he was the younger brother. So this was meant to catch us off guard. God did that on purpose. In spite of the fact that he was the younger brother, God promised that he would receive the blessing and covenant promises given first to his father and grandfather. On more than one occasion, God himself met with Jacob to confirm these things. And yet, we've seen this over and over and over and over and over. And yet, rather than simply trust God and allow God's plans to unfold and God's timing with patience, Jacob continually tried to, and I put in scare quotes, assist God in accomplishing his purposes. Honestly, if there's one thing I would... One, one idea or one phrase or one concept I would use to describe Jacob, it's his attempts to assist God in God executing his plans. And by that, generally, it was a faithless assist. Well, among other ways, we saw this in that instead of trusting in God, he manipulated his brother out of his birthright, which is part of why Esau wanted to kill him and part of what created the drama that is in this scene. Instead of trusting in God, Jacob tricked his father into blessing him instead of his brother with the help of an urging of his mother. So again, God had promised that he would be the recipient of the blessings of God. But Jacob determined to take those things into his own hands instead of trusting in God's plans and ways. And instead of trusting in God, Jacob worked even to manipulate his father-in-law's flocks and herds His father-in-law Laban, who admittedly was an even greater opportunist than Jacob himself. Nevertheless, Jacob sought to manipulate him 
in order to gain this blessing, presumably that he believed was his, and, and maybe in a certain sense he was trusting in God for, but he went about it in his own ways rather than God's ways. Well, once again, as Jacob headed back toward his brother, 20 years now after he'd fled from him, we're left with the two critical questions of this passage. Did Esau still want to kill Jacob? And had Jacob's last encounter with God changed him in a significant way, such that when the meeting would take place, he would act in faith rather than offer God another assist? Well, the the answer to the first question is clear and obvious, and we'll get that in the second scene. The answer to to the second question, though, is not quite as straightforward. We see see at least the beginning of the answer in verses 1 through 3. Let's look at that again. So the question here is, had Jacob been transformed in any significant way by his last encounter with God? Look at verse 1. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and saw, his eyes and looked, and behold, remember, 20 years he'd been away in another land. God commanded him to go back. He was heading back. God met him in a dream. and, And now after all this time and In the the beginning of this journey, he looks up, and behold, Esau was coming. And not only him, but 400 men. His servants had warned him. He had sent messengers on ahead. They came back and reported that Esau was coming with 400 men. Here they are. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, and then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, picture this, bowing to the ground repeatedly, says seven times, until he finally came to his brother. Well, the time had finally come. After all of these years, Jacob laid eyes on and, and came to his brother once again. This, this chief of all busted relationships. I mean, some of you have messed up siblings. Some of you are the messed up sibling. But this, this probably takes the cake. Uh, whatever you've been through, it probably doesn't quite compare to this. And here they are again, together. Upon first reading this passage, this story of this reunion, or at least this approach, as I have many times in the story of Jacob, and as I imagine you have many times in the story of Jacob, you, you, you questioned whether or not God's latest act of grace wrestling with him, had truly changed Jacob in a significant way. So in this case, it was the wrestling. He, he had come to Jacob in different ways in the past, and, and you remember, okay, that's awesome. I mean, we've all prayed for that, God, right? God, meet with me in a way. That there's some hard situation coming up in my life. Meet with me in such a way that I'll be strong enough to go through it in faith and the confidence that I should have with your promises I mean, maybe you've met with God in this way. Probably not, but imagine him answering it not only with some inner sense of his presence, but with the actual physical, his actual, I guess, symbolically physical presence as he wrestled with an angel. You'd think, wow, that's even better. So did it work? Did, did, did God, through that, transform him enough for it to make a difference now? I wondered if... God's latest act of grace changed him in a significant way. Consequently, I wondered a familiar wondering whether Jacob's actions described in this passage, the one we just read, were rooted more in godly faith as the result of this encounter with God or worldly shrewdness. What do I mean by that? 
Well, there's a case that could be made. And in fact, a couple of the commentators I read made the case. There's a case that could be made that Jacob was offering his animal gifts and bowing repeatedly before his brother. And as we'll soon see, the next scene referring to him as Lord and himself as Esau's servant. There's a case to be made that he was doing these things as a legitimate act or as legitimate acts of repentance and restitution. In other words, perhaps he truly felt godly grief and felt sad for the ways he had cheated his brother. He had. He'd he'd cheated him. He'd sinned against him. Maybe this is what godly grief looked like. He, He was... If you steal something from someone, it is not enough, we're told in the Bible, to just say, I'm sorry, I stole that. You need to give it back. That's what restitution looks like in the Bible. Maybe that's what this is. There's a case that could be made for that. Maybe this was his attempt to make wrong on a horizontal level, an earthly level, or to make right the things that he had made wrong. On the other hand, and, and actually the hand I think more likely I think this is possibly yet another expression of Jacob's fearful, fearfully taking matters into his own hands. Another attempt to assist God. I believe this is the more likely option for a few reasons, and we need to hear these, and we need to learn from all of them ourselves. First, Jacob acted with a familiar favoritism. It had happened before, and it's going to happen again. He acted with a familiar favoritism. Did you notice anything about the way he ordered the people? As they made this procession, this train toward Esau, did you notice anything about the way he ordered his his tribe? He selfishly prioritized the people he was responsible for and made those least desirable to him go out front, lead the way. The servants came first with their kids, and then the wife and kids he loved less, and then the wife and son he loved more. This is going to be a, a big deal going forward, if you remember, with Jacob and the story that follows. This wasn't new to Jacob. We've seen it before in him. It wasn't good then, and it isn't good now. We can only assume that he did this, hoping that whatever bloodlust Esau might have still harbored for for him would have been satiated by the time he got to the second or third wave, or perhaps the, the third wave could have gotten out of there in time if they saw Esau doing something treacherous. The point is, I think it's likely worldly shrewdness rather than godly faith. First, because it displayed similar favoritism. Second, he bowed repeatedly, but it's not just that. It's the way in which he bowed and the way the narrator describes the bowing. He he bowed repeatedly in a way that would have been understood as groveling rather than humility or trust in God. The bowing himself to the ground seven times, the language where it appears elsewhere in the Bible is something that a fearful guilty servant would do, sometimes before God, and that would be right. But it's something a fearful, guilty servant would do, not a repentant brother who was convicted of a sin but confident in his God. The third reason I think this was probably another expression of worldly fear was that, as we'll see in a minute, the titles that he assigned to himself, servant, and to his brother, Lord, were not in keeping with God's word. What do I mean by that? Do you remember the word of the Lord to Rebekah concerning Jacob back in 25, 23? The Lord said to Rebekah this, two nations are in your womb, Jacob and Esau, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. 
The one will be stronger than the other. The older will serve the younger. And here's the point. Just like we talked about a little while ago, who you are who God says you are. Do you remember how we saw that in the text? You are who God says you are. You are not who you feel like. You are not what other people tell you you might be. You are who God says you are. And God had declared that Esau was the servant and Jacob the master. God had named Jacob the master and Esau the servant, but servant, but Jacob's actions here communicated something different. The last reason I think this was an example of un, ungodly fear rather than godly faith is that as we'll see in the final section, section, Jacob was up to his old deceitful ways. What do I mean by that? He still couldn't bring himself to speak plainly and honorably. He, he deceived when it was convenient. And, and what do I mean by that? When Esau offered to accompany Jacob and his clan back to their hometown, Jacob lied and sent Esau on ahead with no intention of following. We'll see that more in just a little bit. But, but Grace, as is always the case, I, I'm sure to some degree there were mixed motivations in Jacob. This is the case with you and I always. There's probably some measure of faith and faithlessness in his actions. It's probably wrong to suggest it's 100% sin and 0% faith. It rarely is in any of God's people. And yet, once again, for, for the reasons I just listed, we've likely found yet another example of Jacob being driven by his fear of man and desire for personal gain more than his holiness rooted in trust in God. We ought to be frustrated by this. This is frustrating. It's discouraging to watch a man of God continually act unlike a man of God, just like it would be if any of your leaders in this church or, or even any of your brothers and sisters in Christ in this church did. It, would, it ought to be discouraging to see somebody walk in faithlessness repeatedly. It's right to be frustrated with that, but Grace, it's wrong to be prideful as you consider that. What do I mean by that? How often do you, how often do we make choices motivated? I've got this series of semi-clever parenthetical statements. Sick selfishness, even when it comes to the people you're most charged to care for. How often do you act with sick selfishness like Jacob did? Godly groveling in the face of those who might do you harm, who have the power to do you harm. How often do you act with, God, with godless groveling? How often do you act in faithless forgetting of God's promises and declarations of who you are rather than who you feel like you are or who someone else tells you you are? And how often do you and I act in fear-fueled folly whenever we might want to avoid an uncomfortable situation? The answer, if we're being honest, is more often than we'd like to admit. We may follow in Abraham's faith and in the New Testament, and Paul in particular commends us to do that. Tells us that we are children of Abraham, not when we are ethnic Jews, but when we have the same faith that Abraham did in the promises of God. We may follow Abraham's faith, and if you're a Christian, you do, but we also follow way too often Jacob's folly. And that's why it is such great news, Grace. That's why it is such great news that Jacob's hope and ours are the same, nothing but the mercy and grace of God. If Jacob's fate had been rooted in anything other than God's pleasure, he would have been lost, just like us. This is our humbling story, too. 
and that which makes the grace of God so amazing. So look at him and see his folly and see his sin and see his faithlessness and be frustrated by it and then hold up the mirror quickly and see those same things in yourself. And so instead of scoffing at him as if how could he be such a sinner, recognize freshly the grace and mercy of God that is on you who are every bit as much a sinner. Our hope is that God has chosen us just like he did Jacob, not that we're better than Jacob and have earned God's favor. That's the first scene. Uh, Here's the second, the unexpected happy reunion. Brings us to the second scene of the passage. What would happen next? Is this, you just picture this somber, sorry, groveling train moving along. And finally it comes to the station. It gets to Esau and his men. What happens? Probably not what you'd expect if you didn't already know the story. Look at verse four. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him. And they wept together. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, who are these with you? Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. When the servants drew near, they and their children, there were then the servants drew near, they and their children, and they bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and they bowed down. At last, Joseph and Rachel drew near and they bowed down. Jacob, the one in possession of the promises of God, used his clan in some ways as human shields and gave himself to groveling before his brother to avoid harm. But Esau, the one rejected by God and robbed of his birthright and blessing, ran to his brother and hugged him and in tears and in kisses and in joy. It's hard to overstate the significance of this passage and what it portrays for both our earthly relationships and our heavenly one. As I said at the beginning, the grand truth, the trustworthy saying, worthy of full acceptance of of this passage is that the grace and power of God, hear this, Hear it again. The grace and power of God are such that reconciliation is never outside of reach. The reach of God for God's people. Was there ever a relationship more likely to remain in conflict than this one? Or to word it another way, was there ever a relationship less likely to experience reconciliation than this one? As I said before, whatever relational conflict you have known or know now, it's pretty unlikely that it was caused by choices as diabolical as the ones in this story. Maybe maybe some of you have, but many, probably most, haven't. In light of what he had done and how he had left things, Jacob had no reason to believe he would never know anything but, in some ways, justified hostility from his brother. And so here's the question for us. How many times have you looked at a broken earthly relationship unable to imagine any path to reconciliation? It was so twisted and tangled, so hard and painful that you could not imagine any path back to reconciliation. Again, that's almost certainly what Jacob thought. His actions show it in all kinds of ways. And yet in a way entirely, this is the key, you've, you've mauled around in your brain a hundred ways that it, that it might come the the relationship might be reconciled and none of them seem like they would work. You've done that. I've done that in a way entirely beyond comprehension in a way that had no reasonable expectation. 
And in a way that in this passage, there's not even an explanation given. The brothers embraced in happy reconciliation. The, the point is, is simple. You don't need to be able to imagine it for it to be within the power of God. Amen, Grace? Again, you, 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 we love to think more highly of our wisdom than we ought. And so we think of all these ways, just like, just like Jacob did. I mean, what, what is your version of sending out this, this train of gifts and bribes? And what's your version of that? Or, or even maybe yours is a little more righteous. You've thought of all these things, and yet you still can't imagine true reconciliation on a horizontal level. This wasn't a reasonable expectation. There's no expect, there's no explanation given. And it's really beyond comprehension what even happened here. But the point is God brought about a reconciliation that was awesome. What is on display here? This is just a narrative. We don't, we don't get the undergirding theology that was at work here. This is just a story that's on display. What's on display here is explicitly taught elsewhere in the Bible. Take a look at Matthew 18, 15 through 18 later if you want. And I've got a list of other passages where God talks about what's underneath this kind of reconciliation. But what's on display here is explicitly taught elsewhere in the Bible, and that's this. No matter how broken your friendship or marriage or whatever the relationship is, it is never beyond repair for the people of God. Rest in that grace. Praise God for that. But even more importantly, something is even more subtly on display here. Even more importantly is the fact that here in this, we have a hint of an even greater promise. Not only is it a picture of God's power to heal any human relationship, any horizontal relationship, it's also a glimpse into God's power to restore any sinner into a relationship with himself. It's another sermon that maybe I'll give on a different day, but the whole point of this is really unpacked in Romans 9. We get a glimpse of it in 2 Corinthians 5, 20 to 21. We really need the rest of the Bible to understand this in its fullness, but here God gives us a peek into his reconciling power to not only bring sinners back to one another, but to himself. That's awesome. How awesome is that grace? Embedded in this largely convoluted story, of God's chosen but wayward people is this beautiful picture of God's power to reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by his blood, by the blood of his cross. This is just a little glimpse of this. This is just the the first preview. It's it's the early morning sun of a day that's going to dawn bright and awesome. Jesus is the fulfillment of even this passage and this reconciliation. All of this also shows how hollow, just get this. Do you know what else we see? I mentioned this, hear it again. All of this also shows how hollow Jacob's plan for reconciliation was. He had a plan. Look how ridiculous it was. And you want to know what's even more remarkable still? Verses 8 through 11 are Esau seeing how hollow this was. Remember, Esau wasn't the chosen one. Jacob was. Jacob doesn't see how ridiculous he was being. His his unchosen brother did, though. Verses 8 through 11 describe that Esau, not Jacob, saw how hollow Jacob's plot was for reconciliation. Here's the last scene, uh, the slow, slippery return, 12 through 20. In light of all of this, the final scene is really sad. <laughs> it's sad. There's something good in it, but it's mostly sad. 
The slow, slippery return is the story of Jacob delving right back into deceit. He, he had caught a glimpse in some ways of Jesus' reconciling power. And he slides instead right back into deceit. Look at verse 12. Then Esau said, the brothers have embraced, the brothers have cried and enjoy, at least in a certain way. Esau said, let us journey on our way. And I will, I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail and the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. And my, let my Lord pass on ahead of his servants, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I, I'll come to you at Seir. Seemingly with good intentions, Esau offered to stay with Jacob for companionship and protection on their way back to the homeland. Jacob declined under the guise of the health of his family and flocks, Undeterred, when Jacob refused, Esau offered to at least leave behind a group of his men for protection, which Jacob also refused. So in 15, we, we, we read Esau offering, if, if not me, I, if, I, if I go faster than you, if not me, I'll, I'll leave behind some of my men. Jacob refused that as well. Here's the problem. We know all of this was a deceitful act of Jacob, yet another one. We don't know why, it doesn't tell us, but it was a deceitful act because of two words, Seir and Succoth. Those were the names of two cities. The first, Seir, see in verse 14, was the city in which Esau lived, we find out in verse 16, and where Jacob promised to go as he sent Esau away. The second is the name of the city to which Jacob actually went and built a house and a pasture there with it for his animals. For reasons we don't totally understand, Jacob never went to where he told his brother he would go, and the text implies that he never intended to either. Worse still, we know that this was a deceitful act of Jacob before God, not just his brother. God had commanded Jacob to return to the promised land, but Grace Succoth was just outside of it. It wasn't inside of it. He built houses and pens. He, he set up a home and, and a type of permanent dwelling there. And as we'll see in the next chapter, he stayed there for a number of years. He duped his brother again and was slow to obey God. I, I say slow because eventually he almost did. Not quite, but almost obeyed God. The final couple of verses let us know that eventually he did make his way back to the promised land, probably again years, years too late. But even then, he seems to have stopped short of Bethel in full obedience to God. Look at 18. And jo- Joseph or Jacob came safely to the city of Set- Set- Shechem, which was in the land of Canaan. So he got there eventually. He got back to the promised land on his way from Paddan Aram, and he camped before the city. Somewhat counterintuitively, counterintuitive because Jacob's, Jacob seemed to be primarily driven by his own will and wisdom, The whole scene ends then with him building an altar to the Lord. It's such a goofy, the whole thing is such a goofy scene where he doesn't obey and then he slowly obeys and then he doesn't fully obey on the heels of wrestling with God and experiencing a type of reconciliation that he never could have expected. On the heels of all of that, it ends with him building an altar to God. 
in making a declaration. The name of it was El Elohi Israel, which means God, the God of Israel. It's especially important if you can remember 2820. If you remember back to a few chapters earlier, Genesis 2820, Jacob made a vow that seemed sort of weird at the time, at least it did to me. He said this, if God will be with me and he will keep me in this way that I go. So before going off, uh, out of, away from the promised land to find wives from among his mother's family, God commanded him to go. If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, which he had just done, then the Lord shall be my God. Well, Jacob, whose name is now Israel, seems to acknowledge that God did that, those things. God did keep his word. He, he was with them. He gave him bread and clothing and abundance. And now he had returned to his father's house in peace. And so seemingly he named this place, this altar, as a declaration of God's fulfillment of his promises. So here's the thing. I I wrap up with this. We might be tempted once again. You you look at Jacob, and I look at Jacob, and I think, what is this guy thinking? We might be tempted once again to wonder how he could be so dense that he could wrestle with God and then be reconciled to his brother in spectacular fashion and then immediately slip back into his own sense sinful habits of selfishness and deceit, and then right back into building an altar to God and declaring fulfilled the promises of God? How does he do that? We might be tempted to condescendingly scoff at this whiplash. It feels like whiplash, doesn't it? You're in and out of trust and obedience. But let's be careful. Let's be careful of passing judgment too quickly. How often could we rightly be described in these exact same terms? If your life were put on display and told in narrative fashion, how many scenes within it would look exactly like this? How often do we bicker and fight on the way to church, come in smiling, and then go back out in frustration? How often do we have a quiet time in the morning and maybe even a a type of communion with God and then immediately turn to godless scrolling on the internet, maybe to some worldly purchase we want to make or some social media thing to see how many people like us? How many times do we talk kindly to our friends and then turn and talk trash to our spouse or our siblings? In other words, how often are our lives, if they had this kind of narrator over them, rightly described as spiritual whiplash? How often do we, you fill in the blank, move from one act of seeming faith and maybe real faith to an act of faithlessness and disobedience? How often would we produce whiplash in someone reading the story of our lives? Well, here's, again, here's, here's the last couple of sentences. In admitting our own Jacob-likeness, we are in a place to hear again the good news that although we are all like Jacob and that his folly is our folly, even as we are like him, and that his hope is our hope. It is only when we are in a place to admit our own Jacob-likeness that we have the opportunity to receive the gospel. The gospel is not for people who think that they are fundamentally different than Jacob. The gospel is for for people who realize that we are Jacob, even as we are like him in in our folly, in his folly. We are like him in his hope. The same God that reconciled Jacob with his brother and himself 
is our God. The same mercy and grace that carried Jacob along, even though he didn't deserve it, is the mercy and grace that is ours in Jesus Christ. Let us look to him, therefore, for reconciliation in all things, things in heaven and on earth, through the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has won it for us and will surely grant it to all who turn to him in faith.